This is Psalm 5. O Lord, hear me as I pray. Pay attention to my groaning. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for I pray to no one but you. Listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. O God, you take no pleasure in the wickedness. You cannot tolerate the sins of the wicked. Therefore, the proud may not stand in your presence. For you hate all who do evil, and you will destroy those who tell lies. The Lord detests murderers and deceivers. Because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. I will worship at your temple with deepest awe. Lead me in the right path, O Lord, or my enemies will conquer me. Make your way plain for me to follow. My enemies cannot speak a truthful word. Their deepest desire is to destroy others. Their talk is foul like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with flattery. O God, declare them guilty. Let them be caught in their own traps and drive them away because of their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing joyful praises forever. Spread your protection over them, that all who love your name may be filled with joy. For you bless the godly, O Lord, and you surround them with your shield of love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such a beautiful word that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to be here and to hear from you and be reminded of your love for your people and to be reminded of your sense of mercy and justice that you practice and that you promise to practice, not only in our lives, but in the whole church and in all of human history. Fathers, we spend the next few minutes considering this psalm. I pray that you would help us come away with a deeper sense and understanding of who you are, of how much you care for us, and how you care for us. And then in considering your words, we would have wisdom that we don't normally possess, and that by your spirit, you would give us insight that's not naturally ours. That's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. So if you are uh, here visiting or a regular attender um, and you haven't met me yet, my name is Brian White. I'm on staff here at the church. And uh, we're continuing in our series that we do on the first week of every month. And uh, right now we're going through the book of Psalms. And uh, one of the things that I love about the book of Psalms is it's really God's gift to us as his people. It's God's prayer book for the church. And so it gives us a guideline for how we can carry out our relationship with the Lord through prayer. And, uh, you know, speaking of that, Janie and I, my wife and I, we just moved. And I cannot remember the last time that I prayed so much for little things <laughs> than I have in the past five days. You know, I, I spend a lot of my days thinking that I'm very capable, I'm very upbeat, I'm very motivated, I can do a lot, I don't get discouraged easily. But all it took was packing up boxes and moving into a new house to break me. <laughs> you know, and that fits for me, too. I tend to be a little melodramatic. Janie could tell you this. Maybe that's why I like bands like the Smiths and stuff like that. But um, here I am at the pulpit comparing moving to the psalm that we just read, which, you know, deals with some really heavy stuff. Um, you know, this psalm is described sometimes by scholars as a personal lament. 
it's a personal cry that David makes to the Lord um, for deliverance, but also for blessing. And uh, just a little bit of context. Many scholars place this psalm during the time period in the history of Israel when David was king, but his son Absalom was seeking to take his throne. And so there was this whole rebellion that was taking place. Uh, David was being persecuted by his enemies, and they were seeking to overthrow him from the throne that God had given to him. But on a more universal level, for you and I to consider this morning, really the psalm speaks about the tension that I think all of us experience in our prayer life. Um, The tension that we experience between the hardships we face in life and all the forms that they come, and also uh, how we experience the mercy and the justice of God. So I think the main idea for this psalm is that in the midst of any trouble that we face, we can know that God will answer our prayers with perfect mercy and justice. And so what I want to do is just take a few minutes and reflect on that in three different ways. Uh, We'll do that by considering that because God always answers our prayers, that we can have hope in him, that we can place our trust in him, and that we can live with confidence in him. So first, our hope in the Lord. You know, one of the things that this psalm highlights is um, our genuine need for intimacy with God through prayer. Um, God teaches us to make sense of our needs in many ways through our prayer life. It's one of the things I think, speaking about myself first, it's one of the things that I overlook the most. It shocks me. Charlie and I were talking not too long ago. It shocks me how often I am quick to not pray when I need to the most and how much I unconsciously undervalue the power of prayer and how it shapes my relationship with God, my understanding of how he's acting in my life. And this psalm is one of those prayers where David seems to have this firm grasp on that being his lifeline to the Lord. Um, The book of Psalms in general is given, as I mentioned, is given to the church really as the worship book of God's people. That's one of the things that Rob's talked about as he's described the series that we're going through. And what we mean when we say that is that one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is that they give voice, a full range and a voice, to our entire human experience and all the emotions that are associated with it, Um, especially all the emotions that we experience living this side of heaven, you know, being fallen beings living in a fallen world. Uh, And it also gives us as believers a sense of license and freedom to have and express our emotions to God in in intimate and unguarded terms. I mean, you see that just at at a first glance with this psalm and any of the psalms. The psalmist is very unguarded in how he speaks about his experience, his fears, his insecurities, his hopes, and his understanding of who God is. In verses 1 and 2, there's a huge emphasis on actually talking with God. And I think, you know, we, we overlook that constantly. God actually wants to hear from us and to talk with us. And uh, we see that using real terms. You know, in the NLT version that I read this morning, the psalmist calls God to hear his cry And to pay attention to his groaning and the thought there that it's trying to communicate for us is that the psalmist, David, is experiencing the type of difficulty and suffering that makes it difficult to put into words. And so he's asking God to hear and to discern, to understand what his groaning is in his heart, you know. Uh, We often lose sight of the fact that the psalms by their very nature are devotional. You know, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, For a long time as a Christian, I was very unfamiliar with the Psalms. They seemed like they were buried in the middle, so maybe they weren't that important. I didn't know that they, you know, were really a voice that God was giving me to carry 
put context to my relationship with the Lord. And I certainly didn't understand that they're very devotional and personal by their very nature. And not just for the authors, the human authors that wrote them, but they're devotional for you and I. They give us license and the ability to approach God as if we have a right to speak with him. And for us, that's very counterintuitive to how we think about a transcendent holy God and us as people who are screwing up on any given day, right? Um, the prayers in the Psalms, as you saw this morning, and if you've read any of the other Psalms, typically contain language that is super real, about a very real world. They're gritty, they're raw, they're unedited, um, they're unguarded, and they talk about how they're really feeling. Again, the melodrama really appeals to me <laughs> on a deep level. Here, um, in the immediate context of this Psalm, uh, it shows us how David deals with his difficulties as the king of Israel and experienced something that surely would be very painful for him, both on a personal level, but also very frightening for him as the king of Israel. And what he does is he pleads with God to hear his prayer requests, expecting them to be answered. It seems that David actually pins all of his hopes on the fact that God will do what's just, and what's just will be good for David. And so that leads to the question for you and I, if the Psalms are devotional, and we read this psalm and we consider how it's supposed to inform our relationship with God and how we speak with him, how do we deal with that in our own lives day to day? Typically when trouble comes, for most people, this is a generalization, but it certainly appeals to me first, put me at the front of the line. Typically when trouble comes, uh, whether it's the hostility that we experience from others being persecuted, uh, whether it's circumstantial problems, whether it's our personal sorrows, whether it's sound system problems, whatever it is, we tend to turn inward on our pain and our suffering. And really where that leaves us is not with a sense of expectant hope that God is hearing our prayers and doing something about it, but it leaves us feeling discouraged. It leaves us feeling as if we're on our own. And it really can lead to a sense of self-centeredness in how we think about our life and how we think about our relationship with God and others. You see, this is where the psalm, this psalm especially, I think, is intensely practical. There's nowhere in the book of Psalms that you'll find that God says that your problems are unimportant to him because it just doesn't happen. Rather, the Psalms give our problems and especially our emotions around them a voice and they encourage us to bring them to God in prayer. You see, the first three verses in this Psalm show us that God encourages us to bring our prayers to him first and foremost. It says, in the morning I will come to you. And this isn't just for piety's sake. You know, we're not called, Scripture doesn't call us to be like monks who live in a monastery, who pray all day, we never go outside, we're up at four in the morning praying, because that's not happening. Um, but really, how we deal with the trauma of living in a fallen world, whether it's from the hurts that others cause us, uh, whether it's our own brokenness as fallen beings, uh, in many ways is shaped in our words and our emotions and our devotional life, for better or for worse. And what I mean when I say that is that it's either shaped by our view of God and his goodness, who he is by nature, not just what he does for us, but who he is by nature, or it's shaped by our flawed perspective on our own experiences. So our prayer life either increases our ability to have an eternal perspective on what we go through and how we deal with it and how we respond to it, or it's a flawed perspective based on our own brokenness. 
And that's typically short-sighted and robs us of seeing God clearly. But when we do do it, by, you know, when it is according to God's perspective and it's shaped by his goodness, by his nature, God increasingly grants us a proper perspective on our lives and all the challenges that we face, whether they're everyday ones like moving boxes or whether they're real serious ones, life-threatening ones like David was experiencing in this psalm. Our honest grappling with the hard and the good things of life in our prayer is increasingly shaped by God's view of our problems. And what happens as a result of that practice, as imperfect as it is, as much as we flail back and forth with it in our prayer life, is that God increasingly teaches us to go to him first in the morning, to approach him confidently in prayer with the expectant hope that he not only cares about our problems, but that he's going to do something about them and that that will not only glorify him, but be good for us as well. As we learn to have hope in bringing our requests to the Lord, it also reminds us that we can trust him in day-to-day life. And that's the second point, that we can place our trust in the Lord. Now, on one level, as I mentioned, the psalm of personal lament presents the struggle of injustice and being afflicted by the enemies of God. That's David's immediate context. And there may be those of us here present who have experienced the same thing in our own life, genuine persecution for the calling that God has in our life as Christians. And the language that David uses here can seem pretty abrasive to us. I think one of the things that um, we, you know, we live in the 21st century, we live in a culture that promotes a very PC um, attitude to everything in life, uh, a very like forced niceness about everything that we experience. And that doesn't really match with the language that we see David using in the Psalms and God giving us the license to use in our difficulties. Because um, really the, the culture that we live in and the pressure that it brings um, really doesn't leave room for us to give genuine expression for things that are important to God like justified anger or a genuine frustration at the evils and injustices not only that we see in the world or that we experience in our lives or the lives of our loved ones. The Psalms are familiar with the tension between the goodness of God and the wickedness of those that harm his people. And so you and I are called to interpret the evils of the world and the injustices that we face and that we see in light of God's goodness and protection of us. And we see David doing that. In verse 8, David asked the Lord to make his way plain for him to follow, to lead him in the right path. And why does he do that? It says, so that his enemies, the wicked, will not conquer him. You and I see, if you watch the news at all, I try not to because it stresses me out, raises my blood pressure, which I don't need any help with. But you and I see injustices in the world all the time, all around us. Um, I was just recently reading an article about a young Marine who was on leave in Los Angeles visiting his family, and he was murdered. Um, And the story was um, partially an interview with his mother, and she was talking about how this young man was uh, devoted to his military service, how he had a very strong faith in the Lord, how much he um, enjoyed helping other people. He would help foster kids in a tutoring program at uh, the school in the neighborhood where they grew up. And that he was just the kind of, like you hear so many times, he was the kind of young man that would step out and help anybody at the drop of a dime. 
but what happened was that he saw two people trying to rob a car and he stepped in and said something to him and one of the men took a gun out and shot him. And as kind as the article was in describing him, the article was equally blunt in how it talked about the man who shot him. It described him as being a gang member who had a uh, long criminal record. It described him as never having held down a job. Uh, he was actually sentenced to 100 years in prison, essentially a life sentence. And even at the time of his sentencing, the article depicted him as being cold and careless about the damage that he had caused. He was unrepentant for what he had just done. When you and I experience or hear about cases like this, we genuinely wonder, uh, with such a tragic loss of life and such deep injustice, we wonder if justice is really being served. For you and I too, when we're removed from the situation especially, it can seem really easy for us to say who the righteous person is in that story and who the wicked person is in that story. And you know, the article was clearly biased. The Marine was a good young man who did all the right things. And the other young man was a gang member who seemed to do nothing good. Now we think like that. We, think, we tend to think in black and white terms, whether it's reading the psalm and differentiating David from those that persecute him, uh, whether it's the young Marine or the man that tragically took his life, or whether it's the injustices that we suffer, whether it's interrelational conflicts that we have, uh, when we experience hardships in our workplace or other areas of our life, we all tend to think in very black and white terms and we think we know who the righteous is and who the wicked is. When we experience troubles and hardships due to the wickedness of others, I think God's acts of justice are really a source of comfort and relief. And he wants us to live with that truth. He wants us to rely on that truth. Spurgeon once said that the wicked will laugh now, but will leap, weep later at judgment. While those who place their trust in God may weep now, but they will rejoice later at the resurrection. You see, I think one of our biggest difficulties, though, is when it comes to our sins, whether it's our sins that we commit against God or the sins that we commit against others, suddenly his commitment to justice and punishing sin becomes very unsettling for us. It's easy for us to look at other people and say, yeah, that guy, that's a bad seed. And anybody who knew me growing up, we were just talking about that when we were moving, I was sharing a story about my former life. Anybody who knew me growing up could clearly say, this guy is a bad seed. This guy is one of the wicked. And I wouldn't disagree with them. <laughs> Here in this psalm, David is lamenting real and personal persecution in his own life. But what we also see, especially in verses 4 through 8, is this general contrast between people who are the enemies of God and people who are the righteous, people who have a standing before God. And that leads us to the question, who really is the righteous and who really is the enemy of God? Paul helps us with this in the New Testament. Just before the reading that we did out of chapter 5 in Romans 3, Paul goes to great lengths to describe the sinful nature of all of humanity before God. And you know, it's interesting that Paul actually quotes David in this psalm here, in the ninth verse of this psalm. But where David describes the wicked people who are persecuting him, in Romans 3, Paul actually uses the same verse to describe all of humanity. Listen to what he says. 
He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. To together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. You see, if we're honest, we have a really hard time seeing ourselves in Psalm 5, unless we're with David, the victim. But Paul says that in our fallen nature, we're actually just like them. Early in our service for both our law, the reading of the law and the reading of the gospel, we took the same set of verses that go together out of Romans 5. And in that section, Paul describes us in our sinful state as literally being the enemies of God ourselves. By our own very nature, we live in open rebellion against him, whether we know that or not. Like the wicked of Psalm 5, we would not be able to stand in God's presence if we did not have help. And so going back to Psalm 5, David's confidence in his ability to approach God begs the question for us. What is it that makes David so confident that he can approach the Lord? Is it his own self-righteousness? Not even close. If you're unfamiliar with David and his story in the Old Testament, he was a man that God called to be king of Israel. And among other things, he's described in two major ways. He's described as a man after God's own heart, but he's also described as a man of bloodshed. See, two among many things that David did in the Old Testament was commit premeditated murder and commit adultery. I was uh, following along a discussion the other day that a gentleman was having, and he was talking about how many times, unintentionally, pastors and teachers will take the stories of David and apply them to us and say, look, really what we need to do is learn how we can be more like David. We need to channel our inner David and be more like him. And my only comment in that discussion was, gosh, you know, that presents me with a really big dilemma because the inner David in me is capable of adultery and murder, so I don't know what to do with that. You see, the truth is, is that David didn't place his confidence to approach God in his own righteousness. Rather, he says it straight out in verse 7. He says, because of your unfailing love, I can enter your house. You see, it's by God's grace, not David's merit, that he so freely communes with God as his Lord and as his King. And it's that same grace that makes it possible for you and I to approach God with confidence. And that's our third point, that we can live with a genuine confidence in the Lord. You see, like the psalmist, we are called to live with a growing confidence in our ability to approach God, to bring him our requests, our concerns, and the worries of our hearts, and to know that he'll answer our prayers in a way that's good for us, and, bring, and that brings him glory. And we see this in the declarations about God in the psalm. Listen to some of David's statements that he makes here in Psalm 5. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. He says, each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. He says, O oh Lord, in the morning do you hear my voice. You see, I think 
what we find in the psalm and all the psalms and all of scripture is that the key to living with confidence in God is knowing exactly what God's calling us to place our confidence in. David knew that it was the steadfast love of the Lord that would both protect him from the attacks of the wicked but would also be his source of joy and blessing in life. You know, in our long gospel reading from uh, Romans 5, Paul explains this really in light of the sacrifice that Jesus has made on behalf of those who were enemies of God. I want to read them together for us so we can consider it for a moment. Romans 5, 6, Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice what God says about saving you. The right time was when you were weak and when you were sinful. That was the perfect time for God to save you. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that God did not wait for you and I to get our act together to save us and to die for us and to come back to life to free us from the penalty of sin. And if we see that at the heart of the gospel that God loves us when we're enemies, if we can see that God loved and cherished us when we were at war with him, then how much more can we rejoice in his love for us now that we have peace with him? I think that we can't fully understand the confidence that we can have in God's love for us until we truly understand the depth of our fallen nature. There's a quote I found the other day that I really, it kept coming to mind as I was putting this message together. And it says, grace is when God gives us good things that we don't deserve. And mercy is when he spares us from the bad things that we do deserve. And his blessings are when he's generous with both. I love that. You see, our confidence is in the blessing that God gives us through Jesus, not through anything that we do. Because he took the penalty for our rebellion against God upon himself. Even though Jesus was innocent, he went to the cross, he took all the wrath, all the weight of our sins, and the penalty of our sin for breaking the law of God upon himself. And he gave us his righteousness and his innocence and the friendship and peace that he had with God. It now becomes ours. You know, Luther described this as the wonderful exchange. Jesus takes what he inherently has because he's holy and righteous, and he gives it to those of us that are sinful and unable to approach God as a gift through faith. You know, the Gospel of Luke paints a really vivid picture of this in the story um, that's commonly referred to as the thief on the cross. In Luke 23, Jesus is um, being treated as a criminal. He's put on trial as a criminal, even though he's innocent. He is crucified and murdered alongside two other criminals. And at his crucifixion, he's mocked and scorned by everybody that's present. And he's crucified with two criminals, one on the left and one on the right. And one of the criminals hurls insults at him and mocks him while he's dying. 
But the other thief recognizes both his personal guilt before God and also Jesus' righteousness. And he asks Jesus to remember him when he enters into his kingdom. You see, if you and I are honest, we'd like to think of ourselves as the criminal who got it right at the very least. But the reality is, is we're just like them both. You and I hurled insults at God. And in our sinfulness, we mocked him. But by God's grace, we're also like the thief who recognized who Jesus is. And the second that we acknowledge that to him, he promises us paradise. And we have peace with God. You see, that's the source of our confidence. Jesus and what he's already done. Not how much we could be like David or the Christians that we respect or the people that we wish we were, but in what Jesus has already accomplished for us and gives to us freely. You see, if you and I can look back and see God's great love for us when we were his enemies, we can certainly be confident that he will love and care for us now that we're his children. In the closing section of this psalm in verses 11 and 12, we see the confident declaration that because we take refuge in the Lord, because we find our rest in Jesus, we can rejoice and sing praises to him, knowing that he has spread his protection over us and that he surrounds us with his shield of love. Friends, that shield of love is Jesus. And he always covers you. And he always protects you because he faithfully loves you. And that's something we can place our confidence in. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that you don't call us to be like David and to overcome our own obstacles. We thank you that you know how frail and weak and helpless we are by our own nature. And you reach down and you lift us up by our collars, Lord. And you drag us out of the ditch. You drag us out of darkness and you place us on the beautiful firm ground before you, Lord. We thank you that you're the hero of our story and that we're called to be a part of your story, not that you're a walk-on part in ours. We pray, Lord, as we go out into our week that we're reminded that because of Jesus, we have peace with you no matter how many times we stumble, no matter how often we fail, that because Jesus didn't fail, we have your faithful love and kindness. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.